Let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 12. We're going to be reading Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 8 today. For by grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of yourself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Coming off of verses 1 and 2, which we covered last week, that was the, uh, the appeal, the urge that Paul made to the church at Rome uh, by the mercies of God to, be, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices to not be conformed to the world, but be renewed by the transforming of our minds. Coming off of that, we step directly into these verses in 3 through 8. So Paul had spent this first portion of the letter, these what is now broken down into 11 chapters, and he had set up all of these mercies, all of these things that God has done for us, all of the uh, blessings that he's given us, all the works that he's done, all the things that Jesus has accomplished on the cross and his resurrection and his ascension into heaven. So he makes this statement opening in chapter 12 of saying, because of this, I urge you, I appeal to you, be living sacrifices. Present your whole body, everything about you, everything you are, present it to Christ. Be renewed by your mind. Don't be conformed to the world anymore, but be transformed. Now we're taking this step forward, and Paul begins to lay out a little bit of a directive, a little bit of an illustration, and then an application as well. The interesting part to me is he comes off of this pinnacle statement of the therefore, and he gets into some stepping out processes. And the first thing that he does in verse 3 is he gives us two directives. He tells us that we have to be humble. There has to be godly humility in our lives. And he uses the, the framing, the verbiage of you shouldn't think more highly of yourself than you ought to. And then the second directive is sober judgment. Use good judgment. So don't think more highly of yourself than you should. Be humble. Understand who you are now in Christ, who you were before Christ, and what made that all possible. It was nothing that you and I could do. It's nothing that Paul could do. It's nothing that the readers at the time could do. It was that word, that person, Jesus. And then he says, use sober judgment. In the decisions you make, in the processing of life, as you face situations, as things come your way, and as you just deal with these everyday mundane things, use sober judgment. Make wise decisions. Now, I want to give you a couple examples of humility and sober judgment from the ever-wise 
young Benjamin. Um, actually, it's going to be far more accurate if I just tell you that these were the opposite of these things, the opposite of being humble and opposite of using sober judgment, we'll say. But the first one was when I was in grade school, we used to each year, uh, we, when the weather was, was good and we were out, you know, recess was outside most of the time, we would do class Olympics. And it was all types of different challenges outside on the playground, and the whole class was organized into these kind of these physical physical education groups, and we had certain tasks, certain uh, competitions uh, that we would compete against not only other grades, but we would participate and compete against other classes in our same grade as well. And we would all be given a designation of a foreign nation. So we were kind of, you know, mimicking using the blueprint of the Olympic Games. My grade, my class that particular year, was designated Brazil. We didn't have a clue anything about Brazil. We knew where it was somewhat geographically, but we didn't have an idea. You know, nothing about the culture, no clue. One of the classes we were competing against was Chile. So put yourself there. Okay, you really don't know much about it. You're third grade, maybe. And all of a sudden, you're competing against Chile. So, yes, the, the making fun and the references to we're going to, we're going to completely eat up Chile. We're going to wipe them off the map. You know, and, oh, we're going to eat Chile. Yeah, yeah, it was great. But we had really started on this level of kind of a antagonizing a little bit and then it got to where they were reciprocating they obviously didn't like it so the trash talk just began going back and forth and it was coming up to the baseball throw now at that point I was convinced I was born for that moment I was made for this baseball throw so my arch nemesis who shall remain nameless uh, if you're watching this, you know who you are because you not only inevitably beat me in the baseball throw, but you stole my girlfriend in kindergarten, and I've still not recovered from that. But anyhow, I digress. Long story short, I get into the competition, and I'm puffed up. I'm hyped up. I'm just convinced that, man, there's nobody that's going to be even close to me in this contest. So I take it. I throw it. It was okay, but I knew that it wasn't my best throw. And then my arch nemesis comes up. He outthrows me. He wins gold. I win silver. Chile is victorious. Brazil's the absolute worst. And life as we so knew it at that point ceased to exist. What do you do? So, well, what I did was I went and I got my baseball and I was mad and decided I needed to have a little bit of a temper tantrum and I threw it as hard as I could throw it, which turns out that if that one would have counted, the competition wouldn't have even been close because I would have won. But anyhow, I'm over it. It's fine. Everything's fine. So there was a lack of humility there on my part in young Benjamin's life. The second thing, this, this sober judgment concept, let's, let's go a little bit older. Let's talk a few years maybe. Like I said, maybe we're into late elementary school as we knew it then early junior high. My family and I are on vacation. Pigeon Forge, Tennessee. We had a uh, Cousin Eddie 
style RV, little 17-foot Winnebago that we thought was the greatest thing in the world. It actually, it really was. So many fond memories in that thing. But we were camping you know, at, a, at a camping site down there and took my bicycle with me, new, relatively new bike, and was riding around the place. And turns out there's a couple young ladies around my age, a little bit older, you know, so machismo had to rise up and decide I was riding bikes with them. Their, their bikes were a little bit nicer than mine. Uh, their skill level was a little bit ad more advanced than mine, and we were staying on top of a pretty significant hill down there. As I'm leaving my campsite, they go down this huge, massive hill, and, like, they are booking it, man, like, just straight booking it. So I decided, well, I need to catch up. I need to do my thing. I need to show them that I can hang, man. I need to I need to be right there with them. So I go down this blacktop hill, and I mean, I'm just scooting, motoring down through there. And I get to the bottom, and when I thought that they had gone straight, turns out that they had turned, I think, to the left. Well, kind of the last second, I decided that I needed to veer left, too. But there was some loose gravel that was on the blacktop portion of this. And go to turn left, laid it on its side, which in turn laid me on my side. And it just wasn't a pleasant experience. I, I, I give you that story. And I give you both of these to tell you that there was moments in my life, and still to this day I fight this, I lack in humility. And things that, uh, that I really should not take pride in uh, is are things that I take too much pride in, and, and it's usually false pride. It's not even something that I'm that good at. Um, and then the second is this concept of sober judgment. And that second story, sober judgment, I think, and when we fail to use that is when we are convinced that we can do something that we can't, or that we can, are convinced that uh, we should be able to do something that really we shouldn't and that we can't, or that we're a whole lot better and that we deserve to be doing something or in some situation than what we really are. And I think that that's kind of an ongoing thing with us as we look at our lives, as we fight this battle of, of our pride, of our fleshly pride and self-righteousness, that humility is something that we struggle to really obtain on a true biblical level. And I think the sober judgment also really uh, is a challenge for us because although that we are by far our biggest critics, there, there's this sense in each of us that we fight of this disillusionment, I think, of how we're qualified for some things or how we're better or if we were in this position or this place that we would do it better, we would say it better, we would make better decisions, we wouldn't be in the situation that we're in if we were the ones in control of this thing. So I kind of wanted to frame the rest of this message today with those two points because Paul uses those that, hey, here's kind of the first couple action steps that you need to take after the, you know, as you're living as a living sacrifice, as your mind is being transformed, as you're not living in conformity to the world, but you're, you know, giving yourself holy and pleasing and acceptable to God and that's what's functioning in your life. Hey, be humble and use sober judgment. Now, Paul moves into a body analogy here after this. 
And I'm, I'm not going to necessarily stay on the, the trail of the body analogy, and not because I feel like it's unimportant. Quite the opposite, to be honest with you. But I do believe that there is a little bit of tone deafness in most all of us when it comes to the body analogy. But I don't think it's a tone deafness of familiarity. I believe that we struggle with the body analysis because of the value or the lack of value that we perceive with what we could possibly be feeling in the body. Now, we would never come right out and say that, but I think that some of us, myself included, not excluding myself and not pointing all my fingers at you, but I think that we can we have difficulties in things that we would never articulate of really struggling with what our designation in the body would be if we acknowledged it, or really is if we drew attention to it. Because we all, again, we deal with this humility struggle, this pride, uh, this self-righteousness, this this over over analyzing and giving ourselves too much credit in some things and i think that we become tone deaf to the body because we may be afraid of just exactly what designation we would have in the body so i want to look at it from a little bit of a different angle i want to talk to you about family let's turn to ephesians chapter 2 starting with verse 18 for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows in a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So Paul uses this terminology here as he writes in the book or in the letter to the church at Ephesus that we are the household of God. I want to talk to us for the remainder of this message about family. Insert the Vin Diesel memes here. Okay, the Fast and Furious memes. Got it. But let's talk about family and I want to talk about family then family now, and family moving forward. Let's look at what these phrases mean and what it would have meant then, what it means now, and what it needs to mean kind of moving forward. In this letter to Ephesus and the surrounding churches, Paul is writing to local congregations. Now, this is not a uh, while there are lessons and takeaways from the broad scope capital C church, he is writing, keep in mind, he is writing to local congregations and local church families in these areas. And he describes them as being the household of God. And when we think about local churches, especially in the context of <laughs> here, this, us, in this recording, FCC in Grayson, Kentucky, we have to make sure that we are applying this at a local level. And we see this whenever we look at this individualism that, that we have that, are, that is positive in so many different ways. We have to be able to identify in our local church as to how that benefits us and also how that works against us. And I want to read something to you. 
that kind of gives us an indication of what family would have meant to them, the hearers, the ones who were reading this letter as Paul is writing not only to the church at Rome that we read out of in chapter 12, but also to the church at Ephesus and the surrounding Asia Minor areas, while he, how they would have uh, processed this, what this would have meant to them. So let's look at this quote really quickly. Jesus's early followers were convinced that the group comes first that I, as an individual, would become all God wants me to be only when I begin to view my goals, desires, and relational needs as secondary to what God is doing through his people, the local church. The group, not the individual, took priority in a believer's life in the early church. And this perspective was hardly unique to Christianity. Strong group values define the broader social landscape of the ancient world and characterize the lives of Jews, Christians, and pagans alike. So, for our good, for the good of those around us, and most importantly, for the glory of God, we need to recapture the heart of that statement. We need to make sure that our church family is functioning as closely to what the early church framework of family meant. You see, one of the things that, that I think that we need to clarify about relationships in the church is relationships are not a part of the church. They are the church. The church can't exist without relationships. It doesn't exist without our relationship to Jesus Christ. And it also does not exist without our relationship with one another, with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's what's been lost in an individualistic society. In this mindset of individualism that all I need is me, all I need is me and my relationship with Jesus, the true essence of biblical family and biblical church identity, church family identity, is lost in an individualistic mindset because he has created us not only to be in relationship with him, but to also be in relationship to one another. You and I are related. Now, not because, uh, if you're here and native to Carter County, just because it's such a small kind of community, we're not related because of that. We're related because as brothers and sisters, we have the same father. And that also means that there's obligations that come along with this and that there are, uh, there's meaning to these relationships. It's more than just an acquaintance. It's more than just someone that we know that we speak to in passing, maybe on a Sunday morning. There has to be this indication of closeness. There has to be this indication of transparency and honesty and just living my life without trying to be behind a veil or a mask. Uh, and, and that's one of the things that's really incredibly challenging for all of us, especially in our time, whenever we see what other people are 
we in in our judgment what we think they're living on Instagram or what we see via TikTok what we see that they post on the social media and we see that there's Snapchats coming through and in these different places and these di- different situations and we see filtered images and we see photoshopped images and cropped images and edited images to where all the rough edges or as many rough edges as possible can be kind of chipped away and hewed away we see all of these images that strike and 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 stir up these concepts of they're living in a state of almost perpetual perfection. And we struggle with this because we feel like now more than ever that we are the only ones who truly struggle. And whenever we're detached from people, whenever that family connection and that closeness and that family intimacy is not there, if when that's not present, then we have this mindset that we are far worse than anyone else. But the reality is, is they're just as messed up as you are. But in a family that's close, that has these, these familial ties and these obligations and responsibilities to one another, that means that we see each other for who we really are. And I'm coming to you as your pastor with nothing hidden, not trying to be something that I'm not or act like I have it all together, which I don't. My, my absolute tendency to mess things up and live in a whirlwind of chaos, those are the types of things that we need each other for because, brothers and sisters, I need you to help walk with me through this. You need me and you need those surrounding you as well in this family of God, in this FCC church family, that you need me and I need you. That walking together, we were never intended to walk alone. We were never intended to be isolated. We were never intended to be separated from each other. That there are Times when we can experience life's greatest moments and we need to come beside of each other and celebrate and rejoice in those moments. But there's also the low moments of when everything's falling apart and nothing is working for us that we feel like absolutely everything is laying in a pile of rubble around us. That's when we still need the people that God has surrounded us with. That's when we still need them by our sides. We need to make sure that we are not only willing to be that for someone, but maybe even the more difficult thing is trying to allow others to truly be that for us. When we are in our weakest, most vulnerable moments, that's when we need the people of God the most. That's when we need our church family the most. And while they shoulder some responsibility of being the ones and making sure they're coming to us, we also shoulder responsibility to reach out to them as well. When we look at this struggle that we have with family now, one of the biggest hurdles that I think we struggle with from a local church. Um, It's not just just subject to the local church, but it is very prevalent in the local church, is this concept of trust, of what family means now and what it means moving forward. 
this identity that we need to find in FCC, one of the biggest stumbling blocks and one of the biggest things that we have to overcome is our past hurts. And listen, I get it. I really get it. Some of you, some of the deepest hurts in your life have come from the people that you go to church with, have most likely come from this family of church members that you trusted in, you were vulnerable to, you were transparent to, and they betrayed that trust. They betrayed that vulnerability, and they hurt you. I get it. I truly get it. Um, so much so I won't go into detail, but some of the first churches that I ever pastored, I walked away in all seriousness, not just hyperbole. I walked away with the statement and the mindset that I will never, ever pastor again. I'll never pastor a church again. Myself and my family were so hurt were so betrayed, felt so attacked that I walked away from the, the experiences going, Jesus, I love you, but I have zero desire to ever have anything to do with your church again. So I understand the hesitancy, and it's real. I'm not downplaying it. I'm not scoffing at it. I'm not rolling my eyes secretly behind your back when you talk about the hurts that come from church. I get it, but know this. Families are messy. <laughs> I, don't think that's, I don't think that's a great revelation of truth to anyone that's listening to this. Families are messy. Your family is a mess. There is someone, at least one person in your family that you can look at and go, they are a hot mess. And if you're looking around and you can't find that person that you can point at to go, they're the hot mess, that probably means that you're the hot mess. And listen, I'm going to, I am the conductor on the Hot Mess Express. And if my daughter's watching this right now, she just rolled her eyes like so far back into her head. All families have problems. All families are messes. But here's the difference. The difference between a healthy family and an unhealthy family is the way that we deal with these messes. Or if we deal with them at all. And that's been something that churches have been guilty of is just brushing things under the rug. Or if they're dealing with the mess, then they deal, deal with it in an unhealthy way. Church, we're not always going to handle things properly. I'm going to make mistakes as a pastor. The elders are going to make mistakes. The staff, the leadership, everybody, we are not always going to handle things right. But I promise you our heart is there. And that's where I make this promise to you that as long as I am pastoring here, this church will stand by you in your messes. If you're walking through a mess in life, let us come alongside of you. Now, we're going to require accountability. We're going to require that you clean it up, but we're going to help you clean up your mess. We're not going to just ostracize you. Families are messes. We all have hurts. We all have histories. We all have failures. We're all fallible people. And we're all messy people. But know this, we want to walk through this mess of life with you. We want that here 
in this place. Because when you walk through a mess in your family and you get out on the other side of that and it's handled in a healthy manner, then your family unit is a stronger unit. That relationship, whether it be in a, the immediate household or extended family, when you walk through messes and disagreements and arguments and fallouts and all of these different things, when you walk through those things in a healthy way, then you become stronger on the other side of it. So as we move forward as a family, let's have the identity that it is about God's work in this church. I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to use sober judgment. I'm going to make sure that I am finding my place in the body, the proper place, and we are all one. As Ephesians 2 talks about, that we have all become one as the household of God, none more important than the other. While there may be one more visible than the other, none is more important. No one, no one in this church family is more important than you and you are no more important than anyone else. But let's walk this out. Because the world does not need to see more individualism in this time of pandemic, in this time of crisis, in this time of craziness that we've lived in for almost a couple of years now. The world does not need to see more rugged individualism, especially from the church. The world needs to see a family, a unit that comes together that's flawed, that's fallible, that's messed up, that that falls on its face far more than what we want to, but what they see is this unit, these individual members that are more worried and more concerned and have a higher value on the sum total of the group than what they do for themselves, that they are there for the people who call themselves apart because that is what our hearts long for. Today, what are those areas of humility? What are those areas of pride that you may need to lay aside? What areas of judgment that, that need to be sobered up in your life? What are the things that you think about yourself or your situation or about others that may not be completely accurate? You may not be seeing them completely clearly. That's what I want to challenge us with today is this family identity and how First Church moves forward as a family through the year of 2022. We're going to have some questions, some application questions and application thoughts at the end of this. So I'm going to encourage you to stick around and look at those, write those out, contemplate on those. So once, once I'm done praying here in just a moment, please make sure that you take some time and consider these things. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your goodness, your grace. And as we see in verse 1 of Romans 12, thank you for all of your mercies. Father, I pray that you challenge our hearts this morning. Challenge areas of pride. Challenge areas of where we are not using sober judgment. God, help us to understand who we are in you and who we are in your body, in your church, in our local congregation. God, help us to see ourselves as the household of God, that we are one, that you have brought us together for your kingdom. Help us to understand our family identity, what family was during biblical times in the early church that we saw explode, what current challenges we may face with family now, and then what we need to be 
as a church family here at First Church of Christ in Grayson moving forward. In Jesus' name, amen.